This is Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. In this show, we're discussing an article in The New Yorker by Michael Pollan in the February 9th, 2015 edition. As we record, it's February 26th, 2015. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. And I'm Kevin. So this article is the article I've been dreaming of since I was, I don't know, 18 or so. (laughs) It's sort of like a coming out party for psychedelics. Uh, It's very legitimizing. And it's, it's, it's kind of mainstream. I mean, I, I forwarded this to a bunch of people. Um, and I just, I'm so like, I just, I'm so happy that this article was written. So thank you, Michael Pollan for writing it. And uh, we should mention it's called the trip treatment. It's a really long article and it just, it's a great kind of overview of the current state of, you know, psychedelic research. And again, it really legitimizes, you know, the state of psychedelics and use of psychedelics in various ways. So Michael Pollan wrote this article for The New Yorker, and he's, I think he's most famous for The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, book came out in 2006. Um, so it's a recognizable name in a, in a very popular recognizable publication. Uh, and, you know, the first, we've talked a little bit about our first couple episodes were sort of on this topic of psychedelics being used in research. And the the sources for those articles were nothing like the New Yorker, nothing this in depth, nothing written, you know, this well. Like it was, this article is fantastic from a content perspective, and also just really enjoyed reading it. He's a, he's an incredible writer. Yeah. So so Pollen wrote the Omnivore's Dilemma, which is probably how most people know him, and he's a he's a professor as well of journalism at the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. I was reading a little bit about him, and he wrote another book, which I haven't read, but sounds really intriguing, called The Botany of Desire. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but it's it's a book that explores the concept of coevolution, humans' evolutionary relationship with apples, tulips, marijuana, and potatoes, and they're symbolically what they mean. It's it's uh, apples uh, represent the desire for sweetness. The tulip is desire for beauty, marijuana, intoxication, and the potatoes control, like talking about genetically engineering potatoes. So I thought that was a pretty <laughs> interesting sounding book. Um, but uh, anyway, so he wrote this fantastic article. And I, I don't know if you guys got this sent to you by as many people as I did, but since we started recording the show and you know talking to our friends and family about it and if people have been listening to it, I've definitely myself noticed when everything, whenever something comes up, you know, someone will send it to me like, Hey, check this out. And man, as soon as this article came out, cause we heard about it through a mutual friend of ours who sent it to all of us. Uh, but prior to that, you know, a few other people had emailed it to me. So it's kind of a cool effect that having this podcast is having on, on my life and that like, I feel like I'm a receptor for, for these kind of things. But, uh, but yeah, this this article was it was excellent. Like you said, man, it was long. Yeah, and 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 again, like you're saying, it's mainstream. I mean, you're you know, it's being sent by lots of people who who have you in their sort of a you know drug group in their contact list, right? <laughs> <laughs> thanks to, thanks to the show, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's out there and it's in front of a lot of people, and it's also talking about a lot of people we've talked about on the show in the past, um, right. which you know we'll get into. But so aside from the you know the journalistic integrity of of, uh, of this article, it's also just extremely comprehensive. Um, you know, it deals with the sort of obvious. Um, I think the meat of it is is some of the obvious studies into end of life issues for terminal illnesses, 
Um, but it also gets into things like uh, the quote from the article is the betterment of well people, you know, like using psychedelics to enhance one's life and maybe even use it in a, in a way of, you know, researching uh, the human condition, that kind of thing. Um, right. And then aside from that, uh, some other n sort of new areas of research. The study just came out in November. Um, the results of a study uh, to help uh, smokers treat addiction, which had showed some really great success. So, I mean, it's really comprehensive, just giving a kind of state of the union for psychedelic research and um, the the merits of psychedelics. So it's obviously right up our alley. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, it begins with the... the the man who is had never had you know had experience with drugs and um, at 54 um, you know was in this terminal illness situation. So it begins with a really personal story uh, and this guy who then eventually does go in for the psilocybin treatments and they they sort of go back to this story as as he writes the article and and I think that's a really very personal touching way. Of, of of reading about it and so you know that's the part joe you're mentioning that it, it begins with this all right you know there's someone who's in a dire situation and his his experience with psilocybin was was very positive um and really emotional uh as it, as it gets on in the article at least it was for me as i was reading it and then it goes from him into talking about the people who are conducting this research um is bosses or bosis and mets the quote from Bosis was um, something like, you know, people don't realize how few tools we have in psychiatry to address existential distress. Xanax is not the answer. Uh, you know, how can we not explore this if it can recalibrate how we die? I mean, that just kind of puts it in perspective. It's like, you know, we've uh, throughout, you know, human history, we haven't really had tools aside from maybe rituals and, and traditions and things like that, ceremonies to deal with death, our own death, the death of loved ones and things like that. And, you know, for maybe the first time, at least in, uh, you know, in modern times, we have at our disposal, potentially, these tools to, to deal with that stuff. And so it's a great sort of jumping off point for the article. Um, it definitely puts everything else into context. Uh, and it also, um, it, it's like a sympathetic use, you know, for, for even people who are very skeptical of psychedelics and maybe afraid of them. You know, if, if terminally ill people who've never had a psychedelic experience are finding some level of comfort or success, you know, and having these breakthroughs through just very few treatments with something like psilocybin mushrooms, um, you know, how could you not sort of just be at least intrigued that maybe this could be helpful for people who are, who are yeah. going to die anyway? It's like, what's the harm? You know, I mean, what, what's the harm in that case? Well, and it's also, it's also almost like you could compare it to, uh, the, the whole movement to legalize, uh, marijuana. It's like the, the the political foundations, at least, were were in uh, the medical cases, right? I mean, it was easier to change the public's mind about uh, about the substance uh, when when it was a medical case. So it seems, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's a politically calculated move because I I, I imagine that the the real emphasis is not on the politics of the situation that that people the people in science are just trying to do what what they do. But uh, but politically, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like you have something that could potentially benefit uh, a lot of people, and in, at the very least, it's worth uh, it's worth following up. It's worth doing the the work to know uh, if there's anything there. So, are you saying medical marijuana is a gateway drug to recreational <laughs> <Yes>. marijuana? <laughs> exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and I like the way um, 
Paul and gave like a little historical rundown of, yeah, this research is happening now. So we're talking about a present day situation uh, and people, you know, studying this now. And he, he does like a quick recap of, you know, over the from the 50s through the early seven. I think it was 1970 that uh, the Nixon administration, it, it became Schedule One, and therefore, at least in the United States, it's not allowed to be used in any way, shape, or form medically or for research. So he, he touches on the history a little bit um, and, among others, uh, talks a little bit about the Marsh Chapel Good Friday uh, in 1962, which is it's an interesting story. It's not very interesting from a scientific perspective because, it you know, it's – but it, it, I think, is a good example of what people were trying to do to learn about it and the challenges that they were facing. The main challenge being, and this makes me laugh to think about, you know, to have a real genuine control group. You know, you can't really do a double-blind research on this because the people who took the placebos are looking at the guy next to them who didn't take the placebo. And it's generally pretty obvious. There's a quote um, from that, the, the Good Friday, where it's saying... Um, telling the subjects apart was not difficult. Render, <laughs> rendering the double blind a somewhat hollow con- conceit. Those in the placebo sat sedately in their pews, while the others lay down or wandered around the chapel, muttering things like "God is everywhere." And, oh, the glory! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine the you know the, whoever the, the lead experimenter was in that case or any case, you know, walking up to one of those completely sober-looking people, literally, you know, and saying, "Are you are you having a mystical experience? Like, which of these boxes should I check? You know, are you are you experiencing <laughs> unity right now?" <laughs> yeah, just kind of sitting there, like, just yeah, just quietly in their pew. I mean, that's that says it all, right? there yeah it also talked uh he mentioned the you know when psilocybin entered the western consciousness um after gordon wasson the the a vp of jp morgan um wrote a life article in 1957 after his experiences in mexico with uh maria sabina um so at least mushrooms in particular uh you know for for us was new as of then and Putting that in the context of like politically, you know, how accepted is this? Um, There was a part of the article where it mentioned how like Spain uh, was very much associated mushrooms with pagan culture. So, you know, for hundreds of years, it's been it's it's been a Western Western suppression. Um, And there's a question posed directly: uh, Was the suppression of psychedelic research inevitable? Uh, and Stanislav Grof, um, the psychiatrist who used LSD um, in his practice in the 60s, he has this to say about how um, his quote was, it loosed the Dionysian element on America, posing a threat to the country's Puritan values. And it was bound to be repulsed. And he, he says he thinks you know the same thing could happen again if it's, depending upon how it's handled you know, scientifically and how it's handled socially and how it's handled in the, in the media and to Pollen's credit, I think he does a great job of presenting it in a way where he, he, you know, maybe can mitigate that. Yeah, I mean that that's a fascinating point because if you, uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, that jumps out at you when you're reading this article is that everything that's being done now was being done before. I mean, it's being done now with better technology and with uh, just with different tools. Uh, but everything that's being done now was being done before uh, by by people with the same exact pursuits, 
and it was all shut down. Uh, it was all shut down in, in the 60s because the LSD got out into the public and because there was a tremendous uh, public fear about psychedelics uh, because of the, the kind of popular use and the non, I would say the non-spiritual, non-academic use. But, uh, but that, that's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a fascinating thing. And then it's like if you, if you want to look at the United States particularly as a historically it's like a it's a it's a country that is extremely religious extremely religious, religiously conservative and that definitely plays against the doing doing any a kind of study like this so i think that it's something that you notice and it's something we've brought up on on other podcasts is that these people are are the, the researchers and the scientists are very careful i think they're very measured about what they say and I think that they're very, very acutely aware of that religious conservatism and that they have to be very, very careful about the statements they make and about, uh, you know, the, the type of studies they do, because they, this could all be jeopardized very, very quickly. Robin Carhart Harris, who we talked about in the uh, psychedelic research renaissance episode, uh, who did some more research, uh, recent uh, studies, um, said, uh, says something about, uh, you know, an avoidance of the kind of magical thinking that goes along with psychedelic use and, and research, uh, where, you know, people, some people f- seem to kind of think that they have, you know, they may have a hypothesis that they're sort of committed to, you know, before this, the trials even begin, you know, they kind of just have a pseudoscientific uh, perspective on it. Um, and that's important to avoid that, you know, just to, to maintain the sort of strict scientific perspective. And I think it's, you're right, it's great that people, this round of research are doing things even more so, even more, um, uh, you know, scientifically and trying to avoid those, those pitfalls. Um, but I mean, it's interesting to think, like, also just the the um, like the the time frame of all this stuff. So you're right. I mean, it, it, this was going on in the 50s and 60s when these things were first being discovered, and there was a little bit of research being done, and then basically nothing until um, this article doesn't mention it. But um, the earliest reference I know of uh, in in sort of recent decades was the uh, Rick Strassman uh, research into DMT, in I think it was like 1990. Uh, and that was the first research done since these things were made illegal in like the 1970-ish time frame. Um, and then, but basically, as far as I can tell, nothing was done, more or less nothing was done until about 2006. Yeah. Uh, and they talk about that, that study by, I think it was Roland Griffith, Griffiths in this article. Yeah, the article, in, in, it was a, a journal called Psychopharmacology that Roland Griffiths wrote. And it was that it was the article by him that these guys, Bosis, Ross, and, and Gus, the guys in New York who, who are doing the psilocybin research for terminal patients, um, this, this article gave their work legitimacy and it made it a lot easier for them to uh, get funding, get approval, um, be able to move forward with what they were doing. And Griffith's work is really, really cool uh, to, to, to read about. Um, and there, there is a part that I liked there. Catherine McLean is a study that she had done who works for Griffiths um, talking about psilocybin experience having a positive and lasting effect on personality, which in, in he, they say it very clearly. It's, it's like it's, a, it's against the conventional thinking in psychology because they say, you know, personality is usually fixed by a certain age. Um, but she was saying how more than a year after the psilocybin sessions, volunteers who had the most complete mystical experiences showed significant increases in their, quote, openness, which was a term from the, from the study. And then openness, which 
encompasses uh, aesthetic appreciation, aesthetic appreciation, imagination, and tolerance of others' viewpoints, and is a good predictor of creativity. Um, yeah, Gr- uh, Griffiths comes up a, a few times in the article, and and you know, as recently as 2006. Um, he, you know, this, so the recent history leading up to what's happening these days. Right. And actually I think he, his uh, lab has even done more recent studies as recently as uh, November, 2014, the results came out of that, uh, smoking addiction study, which I found fascinating because the, 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 uh, two times that I've fully quit smoking successfully have been thanks to psychedelics. Um, I mean, most recently in all honesty, it's, it's, it has stuck. Um, I've quit in the past, you know, just without the, any particular aids, but, um, the, uh, but the two most effective times have been when I've, uh, had sort of like just a, a realization in the peak of a psychedelic experience that now, now is, now is when I quit, you know, right now it just happened. Have you ever tried to, uh, Quit taking psychedelics by smoking. <laughs> That's a great idea. I should try that. You sure you should try that. I'm pretty hooked on LSD. It's like I do it at least a couple times a year. So it's, it's I can't stop, you know. Um, but, uh, but going back to McLean as well, I thought something really interesting, another angle as far as like a, a challenge to the tr- uh, traditional um, scientific uh, approach uh, she mentions, uh, you know, hoping to someday establish a psychedelic hospice, um, mm, yeah, yeah, where like the dying and their loved ones can use psychedelics to help them all let go. Uh, the article oh, says, wow. and she says, if we limit psychedelics to just the patient, we're sticking with the old medical model. Psychedelics are so much more radical than that. I get nervous when people say that they should only be prescribed by a doctor. So I think it's kind of an interesting angle, you know, it's, it's, it's going against the idea, um, you know, by, by some more kind of traditional, I guess, scientists like Robin Carhart Harris, who are really specifically avoiding these new ways of thinking specifically to please, you know, the establishment in order to get the work done. But then you have, you know, people who want to take it one step further and, uh, you know, and, and just really think outside the box with regards to studies and even just like who you're administering the, the dose to. I, that's a that's a really cool uh, that's a really cool example. Like the, talking about, I mean, we, we talked about at the beginning of the article the fact that I think that the re, if you're going to write the article and the reason that you bring up a person in a in a in a terminally ill situation in the first place is because it makes uh, it makes the point so clearly that if there is any uh, if there is any beneficial or medical use for for a substance then like you know why wouldn't we do that why wouldn't we pursue that why wouldn't we as a society think it was a good idea to uh, help alleviate the situation of somebody in a terminal in a terminal illness uh, so it, it makes it it's a it's a good hook for the person who might be you know from the outset just against the whole idea in the first place or might or might have some kind of uh, prejudgment about it and uh, so, but I think it's fascinating to later get to also talking about the rest of the people involved, maybe perhaps in a family death or something like that, because then you get into um, not only the, the cases where it could be maybe specifically medicinally useful or whatever, but, but it could just be like a, an aid. And uh, you, you guys both mentioned before um, the, the, self, the self-betterment or, you know, the, the fact that a group of people would take something to help themselves deal with a particularly painful reality, but use it as a chance maybe to, to grow around that uh, event and not see it as only a negative uh, or like a, or a trauma in their, in their life. But, uh, but I don't know, I guess just to finish, I guess getting, getting out to 
psychedelics not only being prescribed by doctors it's like you know i have to say it's like i hear the idea and i'm like oh yeah well you know it kind of makes sense but that's what that's what happened in the 60s that's why you can't do it anymore because uh, guys like timothy leary and and others went uh you know went completely nuts and <laughs> were prescribing everything to everyone so i don't know i it's that's a it's, it's a fine line there's well, I can agree yeah. with it in principle. I think in practice, it's what it's exactly what ruined the whole movement in the first place. Exactly right. So it's a fine line of of balancing. Like, it, can it be used in a medical way? Can it be used to help? But then, you know, in a situation where someone's dying, there's a whole psychological component of not just the person who's dying, but the family. So, you know, opening the door to beyond the strict uh, medical use and more of like a psychological therapeutic u- use. One of the things you mentioned in the article that I'm really excited to see the results of are doing research for someone who's not necessarily sick or someone who's not in a, in a state where they need psychological help, but someone who's actually um, like specialized in a specific field, um, particularly with meditation or in religion to sort of explore the gray area. What, you know, we talked in a previous episode about you know, comparing the experiences of psychedelics and, and mystical experiences like yoga or, or, and there's a part in the article where I think, yeah, it's at Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. Um, they're doing research of the effect of psilocybin on long-term meditators. So they want to use fMRI um, to study the brains of uh, 40 meditators before, during, and after uh, to measure changes in brain activity and connectivity to see what these quote trained contemplatives can tell us about the experience and within Griffith's lab uh, is launching a study of a collaboration with NYU that will give the drug to religious professionals in a number of faiths to see how the experience might potentially contribute to their work we've talked about drawing lines between those things like some things being psycholo- psychological but I really I'm really excited to see kind of what comes out of this research where it's like, well, what if we combine the two? You know, what do, how do people feel about this? Yeah, I think that's that's a really fascinating area of research just to, as, as sort of, um, even just as a, a non-specific kind of amplifier of one's abilities or, you know, just a, maybe even as something that's really aligned with certain practices, like you said, meditation and things to explore, you know, what we have to potentially gain from psychedelic use and, uh, you know, advancements that we may be able to make. Um, that's really exciting. I mean, certainly treating, you know, traumatic experiences, like some experiences, some, um, uh, studies have been done with post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, treating those you know symptoms and and treating those circumstances uh, is certainly worth you know worth doing. But there's just so many areas that are so exciting to consider. Um, you know, just circling back to um, the sort of what they call the outsiders in these in these articles. Um, uh, like Bob Jesse from Oracle, who's who coined the phrase, I guess, or who who sort of promotes the um, the use of psychedelics for the betterment of well people. He talks about something called a longitudinal, multi generational context, uh, something like a church community. Um, he says that uh, I guess the the idea is for reasons of mental health or spiritual seeking or simple curiosity. You know, you could you could experience you have these experiences, something like a quote mental health club. Julie Holland hmm. says. Um, sort of like a cross between a spa slash retreat and a gym where people can experience psychedelics in a safe, supportive environment. 
So, I mean, imagine having, uh, you know, some ideas that you want to explore on psychedelics and having a place where you could go that's a supportive environment to be able to have this experience out of curiosity or specifically apply it to a certain problem you're trying to solve. Um, I mean, that's really exciting. That's something that's been suppressed for like, you know, 40 years or something like that. You can, you can have a spotter. You can go to the, you can go to the health club it's like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have this experience. Can you spot me? <laughs> exactly, a mental yeah, or spotter. just like Skype Mariana, right? Our, our last <laughs> guest on the interview. It's like, I mean, that that's it, it. The thing about this article just pulls in everything together. But it's like, yeah, it, uh, when you when you know the the classic psychedelicists talk about set and setting, this is like the ideal version of that, right? Like having having places specifically designed for it. So of course the fear is is like you know the backlash right like you know do if if suddenly people start promoting like hey let's have a psychedelic gym that we can just have anybody show up at and <laughs> I want a membership to that gym um, but <laughs> but uh, you know with regards to the backlash uh, another great quote uh, is uh, somebody we should have mentioned earlier probably Rick Doblin founder of Maps uh, do you guys have any idea when Maps was founded any guesses I can tell you when the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. I, I don't want to sound like a okay. retard. Let's <laughs> say, say it's in the 1970s. No, I, yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't believe that it was as far back as 1986. You know. Oh, okay. So okay, so these guys have been advocating for this stuff for for that long. So he's been he's been through it. I mean, he he you know he came out of that that time frame. You know, witnessing this the backlash in the 70s and stuff like that, and founding maps in the 80s. Um, which is a fantastic organization for anybody who doesn't know about it, maps.org. Um, and they fund a, a ton of these studies. But um, his, Rick Doblin's quote, he's the founder of Maps, um, he talks about, uh, he's, you know, about the 1960s and how, how much progress has been made since then. He says, that was a very different time. People wouldn't even talk about cancer or death then. Women were tranquilized to give birth. Men weren't allowed in the delivery room. Yoga and meditation were totally weird. Now mindfulness is mainstream and everyone does yoga and there are birthing centers and hospices all over. We've integrated all these things into our culture and now I think we're ready to integrate psychedelics. So that's yeah, a pretty, really like pretty that hopeful. Pretty I don't, hopeful I don't think he, he's spoken to my father and gotten my father's opinion on yoga. <laughs> yet, so. But, uh, but no, that, that's actually, that's a fascinating point because uh, one of the things we mentioned on a, also on a previous podcast was that uh, this kind of the, the general like uh, awakening in society. It's like, yeah, things like, you know, I mean, even something like the legalization of uh, marijuana in different places, something that seemed unfathomable. Uh, not even that long ago. I mean, like, you know, when I was in high school or you know, college, I thought this was the most uh, just impossible thing that could ever happen. And now it's happened and it's, it continues to happen. So uh, I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made that uh, people, the society is like waking up or becoming more more conscious. I think that's uh, that's a valid point. And the way it's happening too, like, you know, there of all these people, the last – not last, but towards the end of the article, they talk about our, our old pal, uh, Robin Carhart Harris, the guy who quoted the term that's famous, at least to us, um, shaking the snow globe, <laughs> the analogy for, you know, creating new synapses in the brain after experiences like this. So here's a guy who's like deep into the science. You know, he's maybe on the other end of the spectrum from uh, Bob Jesse, where he he's looking at it, you know, very empirically. He's the one who he and Nut. I think Carhart Harris is the sort of the man behind the curtain, and Nut gets a lot of the, the the press. Um, but he's the guy who's using fMRIs to do research. And there's there was this article that he they described 
the part of the brain called what is it called? Um, but it's the part of the brain that's effectively your ego. It's the, sort of the command center of your brain. The default mode network. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. The default mode network. So what he's found in in um, having people on LSD and, and having them in an fMRI and collecting data is that it it lowers that default mode network activity and they compared that to there's another um, study done where people who um, are, are into meditation like experienced meditators also did a study where they're going into an fMRI and discovered that from a brain chemistry perspective it's somewhat similar it's like that same part of the brain is being um, not like quieted um, and it allows the other parts of like they talked, the quote is crosstalk. And so it's sort of like the other parts of the brain strike up conversations uh, with itself. And like Carhartt Harris thinks that hallucinations occur when the visual processing centers of the brain left to their own devices uh, become more susceptible to the influence of our beliefs and our emotions, you know, without that default mode kind of calling the shots and and uh, saying the way things should be going and, and having the order uh, to things. So it's shaking the snow globe. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting how they, um, they compared, you know, what they call the default mode network, I guess, uh, to the traditional idea of the ego and how the ego is, you know, such a, a pinnacle of, uh, you know, human, I guess, uh, development, you know, um, and how it, it's, I mean, my interpretation of that is that it's, it, it's something that's a necessary thing. Uh, Thing, a necessary structure to be able to maintain the, the greater, you know, structure of human civilization. But at the same time, it's some, something that's essentially very limiting. They, they compare it to uh, the reducing valve that Aldous Huxley, uh, you know, talked about. And Brad, you may have mentioned this earlier. Um, and how essentially it's like a filter for, you know, what, uh, what comes into your frame of reference. Uh, and by turning that off, you also kind of open yourself up to different ideas than, than otherwise would be accessible to you, you know, that would have been filtered out or interpreted by that default mode network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in the doors of perception, he refers to the mind as a reducing valve. And that, uh, you know, eliminating, it's, it's like our conscious awareness, you know, we'd be overwhelmed if we took in everything. So what, what that kind of part of the brain does is this quote of his is really is really nice. What comes out the other end is a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which will help us to stay alive. But uh, psychedelics open the valve wide, removing the filter that hides much of reality as well as dimensions of our own minds from ordinary consciousness. Right. And then Carhartt Harris cites Huxley's metaphor in some of his papers. Um, mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. he, he goes on to say that, uh, you know, everything that comes through the open doors of perception is not necessarily real. The psychedelic experience, he suggests, can yield a lot of, quote, fool's gold. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's not all, you know, it's not all valid stuff. It's, um, I remember, you know, Terrence McKenna always talks about how like the, uh, you know, the, the beings you meet, uh, when, when you like lift the veil can be tricksters. Several times there's a, a comparison made to children who, who they, uh, who they esteem are like constantly tripping. <laughs> I think it's, it's a great idea. That's it's a comment I've made like a, a several times, like watching a young kid and just like, this kid's tripping his balls off right now. You know what I mean? It's like, he's just in his own world and you can, you can, um, 
I can understand where why he could say something like, you know, this is not uh, necessarily like, you know, everything you see is absolutely uh, or everything you experience is, is, is completely true. And uh, but the, I don't I don't think that like all, it takes away from from, I don't know, the benefit of, of having like that temporary experience for like a period of time in terms of like making your mind uh, more flexible or maybe uh, just a greater wealth of uh, experience. I mean, those are things you can, when your ego comes back into full strength, it's something you can uh, totally discern and something you can dissect and take time to think about, right? Right. And in right. that sort of debate about is it, you know, what's true, what's scientifically valid, you know, what kind, where, do, where do you want to draw the line for yourself or where do you think the line needs to be drawn on a larger scale for like, things to be gained from mysticism or the experiences themselves. There's another part earlier on in the article where the question's posed, um, and this is for the terminal patients, uh, sort of where, where it began. Um, it says, is psychedelic therapy simply foisting a comforting delusion on the sick and dying? And um, Bill Richards cited William James, who suggested that we judge the mystical experience not by its veracity, which is unknowable, but by its fruits, does it turn someone's life in a positive direction? And Gr Roland Griffiths uh, picks up on that. And, you know, authenticity is a scientific question not yet answered. Um, but I liked how he sort of put it into context. He's, he pointed out the same is true for a much more familiar mental phenomena, consciousness. Consciousness isn't something that's, you, you know, we know we, we, understand scientifically yet we all accept it to be true and and we you know we respect it and he says i'm willing to hold that there's a mystery here we don't understand that these experiences may or may not be true uh but what's exciting is to use the tools we have to explore and pick apart the mystery and i think that's kind of what's happening now and that's what this article talks about is after three decades of this stuff being in the dark uh legally you know socially it's sort of coming around and it's certainly coming around in, in the labs and, and, you know, in the thought of having like a hospice or a health club, you know, these are really new ideas. Um, but, uh, I don't know about, you know, whether we need to understand them and how important that is, but like, you know, you were saying, Kev, it's a fine line of, Oh yeah, it's it's like maybe maybe you could say the same thing about religion, right? It's like we can't actually prove that uh, something like religion is good for people, but uh, perhaps if we can, you know, me I don't know, measure measure the the, the positive effects it have on people, maybe maybe that's enough. You know, it's uh, I th I think it's, it's fascinating. At the end of the article too, there's this. Uh, there's this quote. It says uh, it, it's uh, talking about a uh, bossus who's re referring to uh, Doblin's kind of optimistic forecast for the future of uh, psychedelics, and he says um, he says that he 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 would like to believe that that sunny forecast, but he he hopes that uh, the legacy of the work will be the routine use of psychedelics in uh, palliative care. But he also thinks that the medical use of psychedelics could easily run into resistance. And, uh, and this is where uh, <laughs> this kind of made me laugh as I read the end of the article. He says, this culture has a fear of death, a fear of transcendence, and a fear of the unknown, all of which are embodied in this work. Psychedelics may be too disruptive for our society and institutions ever to embrace them. And it's like... Yes, I'm reading that. I'm like this, this guy. It's like th this is something that I think that probably all these researchers are 
uh, blatantly aware of while they're speaking to the press or while they're making any kind of a public statement. Uh, and I think they're right, uh, especially the, the, the fear of death, the fear of transcendence. It seems to be a culture that even though, I don't know, you know I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe our culture as, as uh, constantly afraid or anything, but I think there are, are certain things we can attend to uh, certain fears we tend to, I don't know, embody culturally, like as an entire society. And it seems only mildly amusing that the, the cure for all of that just seems to be psychedelics. <laughs> and that, you know, the a capitalistic culture, you know, that we yeah. live in, it, it, he, um, Poland talks about the, how pharmaceuticals fit into this and like, why this might be difficult, you know, and it's seeming unlikely that the government would ever fund a study. It also seems pretty unlikely that like a pharmaceutical company isn't going to be interested in developing drugs like this. Uh, one, since it can't be patented. Um, I think we joked about this in a previous episode, but it says right here, it's also unlikely that big pharma would have any interest in a drug that it's administered only once or twice in the course <laughs> of treatment. There's not a lot of money here when you can be cured with one session. Well, you may be surprised. I mean, they could charge like, you know, a hundred grand per pill or something like that. Um, or at least they might think that that's the strategy. Although, you know, I'm sure like if it became legal to, uh, you know, to prescribe this stuff, people would just get it at, at other, other ways. Um, but, you know, circling back to, uh, um, you know, the concept of like how compatible psychedelics are with our society, um, that, that we also covered that in a previous episode, the, when we discussed the interview with uh, Patrick Lundborg. Um, where he talks about how, you know, uh, taking, taking the psychedelics, it, maybe it's, maybe it's not for everybody because maybe the people that are, you know, kind of just in those, um, everyday jobs, uh, you know, don't necessarily need psychedelics to, to do their job. And maybe we just need those people to just be like, you know, maintaining the maintaining civilization as, as we know it, um, Circling back to the episode where we discussed uh, uh, entheogens versus other paths, and that's also where we covered: uh, is the psychedelic experience real? Yeah. And it occurs to me, like you, you mentioned this um, about people, like oftentimes religious people question, like you know, well, what's what's the benefit of this? Is this real? It's just you know, you're just uh, deluding yourself, that kind of thing. Those are the same people that you know have faith in the concept of God. Right, like they take it for you know, just as as uh, they take it on faith that God is real. So those same people are questioning whether psychedelics are real. I hadn't really considered that before, but it's it's kind mm. of interesting to me. Yeah, well, I, I, then then you enter into all kinds of uh, historical and cultural questions, and I think Brad brought up earlier in the show uh, the reaction to the to the Spanish as they uh, kind of conquered and colonized uh, the New World. Uh, obviously, psilocybin mushrooms were in were in wide use all over uh, South America, and they had been for a very long time. And they didn't begin to to disappear or like be suppressed until until Spanish colonization. And it's because it just it was just such a, str- a, a stark uh, contrast and conflict with uh, with Western religion and Catholicism. And uh, and I remember reading about uh, the the trip that you mentioned earlier, Brad Gordon Wasson's trip to uh, to Mexico, to Mexico yes. and Central America, who actually with Albert Hoffman, and uh, and just kind of like their their search for psychedelic mushrooms, and it's like the biggest barrier they encountered were that the indigenous people were very afraid of uh, letting the white man know about that because the white man had always been uh, very <laughs> very resistant to the idea and 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 just. Uh, 
uh, just very very aggressive in trying to eradicate uh, the, the, the mushrooms in general because they were such a uh, such a threat. Still considered, is considered a threat. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think I think like you want to trace back. I mean, when you talk about default mode. <laughs> Thinking, it's like that's in our. We're hardwired that way through our through our society, our culture for a very long uh, period of time because of our common history, and uh, and uh, that's uh, that's a really really important issue in the whole thing. That's what I found so interesting about uh, Lundborg, though, because he talks about kind of just walking that line where. You know, you you can oscillate between these two modes. You know, you can you can certainly live on a daily basis in the default mode network. You know, with with the ego intact and just functioning day to day, and you can you know you can cross over into the psychedelic realm and gather lots of seemingly pretty useful information and and uh, perspective and experience from that. And um, you know, so so why not allow it? It doesn't mean that everyone has to take take drugs every morning. You know, and change the the fundamental uh, you know mode of society. But why not have the option? I mean, it just seems so I- extreme to um, to just uh, ban all this stuff. And and that's why I'm so excited to to read an article like this where uh, you know where we're seeing the merits just laid out in front of us by somebody as mainstream as Michael Pollan uh, and all these you know very respectable scientists working on it right now. I feel like we're on the cusp of uh, a really major movement, especially in the context of the marijuana legalization movement. Yeah, but but they, uh, I don't know, but it's, it seems a, a lot more difficult. It seems a lot trickier than the medical marijuana movement because I mean, in the end, uh, though there are a lot of conservative people who maybe don't want to see that happen or whatever. It's it's uh, the stakes aren't as high, you know. It's like the the guy who gets uh, too stoned or whatever just like stays in apartment and plays like too many video games and eats too much pizza for a while which but benefits uh, capitalism because it's it funds yeah. the pizza companies yeah yeah absolutely but it's not like it's not like overtly threatening <laughs> anyway and it's like even somebody like albert hoffman was uh i mean albert hoffman who probably loved lsd more more, more than anybody else as as its founder and uh he still was like extremely, extremely worried about uh, that about that substance getting out into the general public, and he didn't think that that was a good idea. And uh, so I think it's it's very difficult. Like how how exactly do you manage this? How do you decide who gets to take it and where and under what circumstances? It just seems like there's like a kind of a need for a lot of um, a lot of thought into like what the exact protocols are for something like that. Right, and getting there, Kev. You mentioned a neurologist friend of yours read this article and and pointed out two observations that you know you know what he talks about in the article itself or it's hard to have a, a really truly scientific study on this with the difficult difficulty of of accounting for a control group and a variable group um, as humorous as that may seem um, but that the other thing is that there's a small sample size right you know we don't have a, enough data we don't have a lot of data at this point and what I'm optimistic about is as these doors begin to be opened in a, in a laboratory, in a clinical setting, um, it, we're just going to amass the data as we go forward. And, and the more articles we can read like this and the more that um, mainstream society can learn about, um, you know, these things happening, it's, it's just more data. You know, it's like we're picking back up. We lost a few decades because it was made illegal. Um, and not like, 
LSD and psilocybin and these things in terms of what, what the mainstream culture is becoming aware of, um, <laughs> sort of a sidebar, but kind of related in the sense of like where, where the Western culture is heading in terms of its awareness of these things. I got a text from my mom the other day out of the blue that said, one question, did you try ayahuasca when you were in Peru? <laughs> and I was like, where did that question come from? <laughs> and turns out like she's watching a, a CNN, like a show on CNN. I think it was like Lisa Ling, you know, d- does a show on CNN where she does this like investigative journalism about various things around the world. And, you know, my mom had never heard of it before. And there it is on like cable TV, uh, a story about ayahuasca. So did, did she actually see like footage of you taking ayahuasca? <laughs> <laughs> Not me, but like, um, yeah, in the, in the uh, TV show, she was saying how like they had like night vision glasses. And so they, they had access to ceremonies and, and it was, it was really informative. And, you know, I was, it, we ended up having a really amazing conversation. So I, you know, I texted her back and said, yeah. And then, and then I quickly ca- called her and I was like, this isn't really a conversation. I feel like that we can just throw a couple texts back and forth about. So I gave her a call and, um, and we talked for quite a while and it was a really candid, you know, conversation and, and ma- it made me really appreciate my mom and that like she was open to hearing about it and, and uh, that I could that I could be so honest with her about it, but just that really struck me to get that text out of the blue from my mom, you know, who had never heard about it before a week ago, um, you know. So in terms of like the sample size and the data of what this can help um, in the labs and in a clinical perspective, and just sort of what's happening uh, in our society in terms of its awareness of of all these, you know, kind of entheogens. Wow. Yeah, it's it's all becoming so much more mainstream. I remember reading about DMT back in the day uh, in Rick Strassman's book, uh, The Spirit Molecule, and tell, just excitedly sharing this with like, you know, just proselytizing with, with like relatives about this stuff is in your brain right now, you know, and like it just like it's how amazing is this stuff and um, how suppressed is, is the is the research into it and you're right it's it's thanks to like um just modern times and and uh i don't know thanks to the telecommunications infrastructure that we can share this information so so readily and the and travel you know that we can travel so easily uh to to south america for example or, or other parts of the world where where these things are exist and uh, and have this experience, have this primary experience. You know, ayahuasca tourism is like is like blowing up right now. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it is becoming extremely mainstream, um, especially in pockets of society where where there's a little bit more liberal bias. Um, but the fact that you know someone like your mom, I don't know your mom, but uh, I imagine she's probably like my mom. You know, where she may see a report like that on the news and and uh, wonder what that's all about. And uh, it, I mean, just to imagine that it's even on the news at this point is, is yeah. kind of amazing. I don't share this with you guys because my, I think, I think my mom was like way more interested in all these things than I have ever been. So like, <laughs> I think like, there's probably nothing that I could say or tell my mom that would surprise her. <laughs> you know, that's true. I do know your mom and that's, that's, that's definitely true. It's characteristic of her. It's also fascinating that like, you know, like moms change like once you're like more than 20 something years old. Right. 
<laughs> it's like they spend like a, lo- a long time like really afraid that like you'll do any of this stuff and then it's like later it happens then later it's just like a total reversal you know it's like they no longer have to protect you they like trust your judgment so now they like they become like a lot more liberal about these things yeah right. and, and hopefully somewhat curious too sure I wanted to mention the very last line of this article was one of my favorite quotes in the whole article. It was a, it was another Roland Griffiths quote and sort of putting in context, like the, the article begins with this, this patient who's terminally ill and an opportunity for psilocybin to benefit him and, and his acceptance of death. But then Griffiths sort of puts it in perspective and says, we are all terminal. We're all dealing with death. This will be far too valuable to limit to sick people. That was Entheogen, three human beings discussing generating the divine within while still being human beings. We've been discussing the New Yorker article by Michael Pollan uh, from February 9th, 2015. Uh, Check it out and check us out at entheogenshow.com.